Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Your bank should be solving your problems, not creating them. Platinum Bank partners with Twin Cities executives to help them grow their business. Learn more online at PlatinumBankMN.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. December 14th, uh, 2018, I'll never forget. I signed the purchase agreement to sell her my shares at 10.30 a.m. I was sitting at the Starbucks at the Galleria. And at 10.35, I walked downstairs and I signed the lease for Face Boundary's first location at the Galleria. And I knew if I didn't, if I didn't do it in that instance, I would think too hard and I'd talk myself out of it. <laughs> From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine, coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, cultivating the next generation of problem solvers and innovators. The school offers undergraduate and graduate programs in entrepreneurship and corporate innovation, as well as community resources to support new ventures, family businesses, and corporate entrepreneurs. And now, by all means. Spa days are not easy to come by when you're a working mom with three little kids. Michelle Henry dreamed of a place she could just walk in or call on short notice and get a facial in under an hour. Sort of like the face spa equivalent of a blow dry bar for hairstyling. This was five years ago when a few express facial salons were popping up on the coast, but not so much in the Midwest, and no one really owned the market nationally the way Dry Bar does for blowouts. Of course, at the time, Michelle was already running a successful business. She co-founded Primp, a cheap chic boutique chain that grew to nine locations throughout the Midwest. In 2018, Michelle made the difficult decision to exit Primp and start Face Foundry. She opened three Twin Cities locations before launching a franchising program in 2021. As of this summer, June 2022, there are 17 face foundries open around the country and dozens more under construction. This spring, Michelle also opened an aesthetic school to train future staff, and she's in the process of launching a line of face foundry skincare products. Michelle is always thinking about the next move, and that probably has a bit to do with how she grew up. I grew up in a family business. I started working for my parents. They have an in-ground construction business, um, an in-ground pool business. And so I started at 13. They probably still owe me some back wages, I'm just going to say, <laughs> um, if they're listening. But I worked for them, and I really understand, or I really understood what it took to jump into owning a business and the excitement, but also the hard work. Hmm. And I think that I learned a lot from working for them. I ended up going to St. Thomas. I got a double major and double minor, um, took a lot of classes at St. Kate's and majored in apparel design. Mm. And I really loved the creativity behind it. And so upon graduation, I decided, you know what, I'm going to give this a go. I am going to launch my own clothing company. And I look back and I, you know, you have to laugh at some of the, the things that you thought would work at the time. But Looking back, it was um, the beginning of 2008 that I launched it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it turns out at the, by the end of 2008, you know, beginning of 2009, nobody wanted high-end dresses anymore. <sighs> Go figure. Yeah. So I was lucky enough to inter get introduced by a mutual friend to my then business partner at the time, Wesley. 
And we both had apparel design majors, super excited. We just dove right in. We were actually designing doggy bow ties for a while and purses. And, you know, we were doing some screen printing on leather. And we came up with and we went through the motion of what's going on right now with the apparel industry, because really back at the time of 2009, 2010, there were there was a huge um, shift due to the recession, and everybody that had been that high-end shopper had really changed their mindset. And so we wanted to bring that high-end boutique experience, but slash that price point. Mm-hmm. And so the only other real competitor that would have um, clothing in our price point was a Forever 21. And so we really set out to do this and create this cheap chic boutique. Um, we opened our doors September 16th, 2010. And, you know, I just want to set the scene. We both brought $8,000 to the table. We did not come from loads of money. We scraped together because we were 24, 25, and no bank really wanted to give us a huge business loan or any. Mm-hmm. And so I, I remember I would bike to our build outs because I did not have gas money. <laughs> Every single cent I had went into that business. And we opened our doors September 16th, 2010. And it was really well received. And we were so excited about the, the opportunity and the, the welcoming of the community at Selby Dale, which is where you and I met. And you weren't just um, it, you weren't just a retailer, you were manufacturing merchandise for the store. So we because we had had that previous business where we were making you know, again, the doggy bow ties, we had scarves, we were making some bags. We did transition that into our business, but primarily it was clothing that we were buying from wholesalers mm. and just slightly marking it up um, to hit the, the price point that we thought our consumers wanted. Yeah, it was a bit aud- audacious at the time, and that's why it made a great story for me as a style uh, editor to think that you could put a boutique boutiques at the time you always thought boutique immediately high end for sure and to put kind of a a a better priced fast fashion spin on the boutique experience was novel at the time yes it was and you know looking back it was had i known what i know now or had i had to take that leap now i don't know if i could have done it to be honest because I look back and it's like, I remember my dad saying to me, and he's an entrepreneur, you know, he, he gets it. He's like, Michelle, you are signing a lease that you have to be committed to for 10 years. Hmm. Do you want to do this? And it, it was a very valid point. I was 24. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that was, that was a good question to ask. Yeah. But, but it, was a, it, was a, it was a success. I mean, I'm sure there were tough times, but I mean, Primp grew to how many locations while you were there? While I was there, we grew to nine brick-and-mortar locations across the Midwest. Um, we did that all debt-free. So that's something I'm very proud of. I think that you know, I commend my previous business partner, Wesley. She is scrappy, and we had that same vision. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important in a partnership. Um, but yeah, we, we were in there, and we were working all the time. Yeah. And, and she's still running Primp, and it's, yes. it's still doing well. It was a little surprising when you announced that you were leaving, especially because, I mean, just because it was so, it it was you and the two of you seemed to to be such good collaborators. So what what happened? 
Well, back in 2017, I had had my third child. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was the really the first maternity leave, the true maternity leave I took. Um, the, the first two, I maybe took a week or two off. But really, this, this third child, I really wanted to commit to you know, giving her some time. And I felt like I had put in a lot of hard work at Primp, and I, I owed it to my family. And I remember on this maternity leave, I had, you know, endless amounts of clothing, let's face it. <laughs> Primp was <laughs> endless. Um, and I would go and I would really try to figure out, like, how can I make myself feel good? You know, I'd get my nails done. I'd get my hair done. And what really was irking me at the time was my skin. I could not get a handle on it. I would have, you know, hormonal outbreaks. And it was just something that I, I did not ever really feel good. Hmm. And so that was, I kept on trying to look for the right way to, you know, get into a skincare regime. And there was not that option there that was affordable or approachable. And it felt like that same conundrum I had faced when we started Primp. And so I, I remember staying up, you know, multiple nights trying to formulate a business plan and research and figure out, does this concept exist? Um, and why isn't it here? And why isn't it accessible? And the concept was that that going to get a facial that's that's a big that's a half day endeavor it's a, it's a and it's an indulgence and you wanted to focus on making it more affordable quicker more accessible yeah i mean the efficiency and effectiveness is a huge part of it and i think that i did not have the luxury now with three kids to be able to take a half a day mm-hmm. nor did i want to spend 3 or 400 dollars on some of the services that i was finding at you know these higher end spas and med spas a so, spa feel a spa day feels like something special that maybe you get to do every few months at best for sure it's like a birthday gift mm-hmm. right but why not make it be part of your monthly routine mm-hmm. and i think that was something that you know, I, I was really looking for in the marketplace and, and couldn't find it. And I sat on that idea for quite a while um, because I, I loved Primp. I love Primp. I, you know, I adore my previous business partner. And, and it felt like we had built this together. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't ever want it to feel like I was ever abandoning anyone. And sure. I think that's really, it's a challenge because I believe that in business, Leaders have a purpose, and in that life cycle of a business, leaders serve a certain purpose. And I felt like I could definitely leave Primp with Wesley knowing she would take it to the next level and continue to just grow and nurture that business. And I, it was a tough decision, but December 14th, uh, 2018, I'll never forget, I signed the purchase agreement to sell her my shares at 10.30 a.m., uh-huh. I was sitting at the Starbucks at the Galleria, and at 10.35, I walked downstairs and I signed the lease for Face Foundry's first location at the Galleria, and I knew if I didn't, if I didn't do it in that instance, I would think too hard, and I'd talk myself out of it. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's a, that's a big day. Um, I, I don't want to gloss over, because I think it's easy to do, when you told Wesley that you were, you know, you, you wanted out... How did she react? Was she shocked or did was it kind of a natural evolution? It was it was very hard. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It feels a little bit like a divorce, right? Mm -hmm. Where we have built this business. We've been together for, you know, almost nine years. And yeah, it it was really hard, but we worked through it. Um, 
you know, what was even more challenging, she was pregnant at the time. And that was something I, I never wanted her to feel like, hey, I'm just I'm leaving you. And oh, you're about to give birth. Like we I stayed on for yeah. quite a while. I stayed on for almost nine months to make sure that she knew it was something I wanted to hand off in the, the best manner possible and make sure that we still had that friendship at the root of that business. And yeah. so that was really, really important to me. And the friendship has survived. Yes. That's great. <laughs> That's great. Uh, when you first talked to me about the concept for Face Foundry, I remember immediately thinking, um, kind of comparing it to what was happening with blow dry bars at the time. Was that an inspiration for you, sort of that taking something that was a, a really expensive kind of long experience and making it more accessible? Yes. I, I love the concept of, you know, dry bar does a great job. Mm -hmm. I think they're, you know, their aesthetic and overall kind of just brand is beautiful. And I think they do a wonderful job in servicing people. You can book in that walk-in service and that same day availability. I think that it's really modernized and I love that people are able to adapt to booking in. I love that I can go get a, you know, blowout if it's, if there's availability. Yeah. So, and it's kind of taking that, that same kind of concept, especially with like nail salons. I kept thinking, you know, how do you kind of merge this, mm. but really make sure that the aesthetic is really high end feeling. And I think that's something that if I, if I could pinpoint what I enjoy most about building businesses, it's really trying to figure out and problem solve, like, how do I, for the least amount of money, make this feel really high end? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, 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 you leased a space at the Galleria, which is a big undertaking. Did you, did you have, you've got to hire a staff, you need estheticians. I mean, I can't even imagine how many, how many things you had to put together. Had you done all of that? Did you know what it was going to, what kind of investment it was going to take? Well, um, I took my primp earnings and I dumped it right into Face Foundry. So, um, you know, I, I remember the first year living on zero salary and just hoping and praying that it would work. But also I had a lot of really great people in the, the aesthetic space that stepped in. Um, someone that I had recruited from a med spa that I was seeing for years and years actually jumped ship. She took a big risk and said that she would come join us. And that was hugely helpful. She helped develop a lot of the protocols because at the end of the day, and again, fair question, but my dad asked when I started this company, well, what do you know about skincare? <laughs> well, you're not an esthetician. Yeah. And yeah, that's a fair question. <laughs> right. Like I look back, I'm like, yeah, good point. Yeah. But I know what I like. I knew that I wanted to create a space where clients could leave and feel better than when they walked in. Mm -hmm. And that was something Customer service is so important to me. Was the vision big from day one? I mean, I just think back when you started Primp, you were so young and you just wanted to, to make this one store work and it feels like it grew very organically. I don't know if you had, had you talked about Primp becoming a, a, a chain in the early days? A franchise, yes. We, um, we actually explored back in 2015. We filed a lot of the documents. We went through the motions. We talked with a lot of people in the franchising world to really understand what this would look like. Um, ultimately, we decided to keep it corporate, mm. which is at the time, you know, it, it wasn't the right time for us. And I definitely I understand why it wasn't. We had already grown so much corporately that it was really comfortable mm. to be um, just a corporate chain. So 
I, you knew a bit about franchising, and it sounds like you were you were always thinking big. Yes, I always I love the franchising model. I love being able to empower and inspire people with that entrepreneurial spark mm-hmm. and be able to allow them to step into a business and really guide them and support them, but help them navigate what ownership looks like. So from day one with Face Foundry, you were thinking you were building a prototype for something that could become a national franchise. 100%. We were documenting every single thing so we could eventually turn it into an operating manual and then an online platform to train Hmm. franchisees. Did you have um, experts or role models or get advice in that about, you know, what, what what it requires to be a franchise company? Yes. I mean, we the amount of really great franchisors locally in the Twin Cities, it's mm-hmm. actually quite astounding. Yeah. And I connected with a lot of them and really tried to pull out what are the pros, what are the cons. Um, even St. Thomas, we connected with a professor that teaches a lot of the franchising courses there. I, I'm a people pleaser. Like I truly like I love customer service. I love making people feel good. And now my customers, in a, in a sense, are my franchisees. Mm -hmm. And so as much support, as much guidance, anything I can do, I mean, and they know this, I'll be up texting with them, you know, 11 p.m. on a Saturday night, or if they text me at 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning, they're getting my reply. Mm -hmm. So when the first Face Foundry opened, um, was it a hit right away? Yes. You know, I look back and I I'm shocked. I think that it was kind of the perfect storm. We hit it at the right time. And I feel very fortunate that we were next to Starbucks in the Galleria (laughs) because it was truly free marketing. And I didn't really know how great that location was. Um, I I give that's a, a that's an expensive place to start. I mean, the Galleria in the Twin Cities is is the 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 toniest, most upscale of the malls. That that's not a cheap lease to sign. No, but you know what? Here's the thing. It's it's completely reframing that mindset because you think about salons or spas, they're always off the beaten path. Hmm. You never really see a salon or spa that's, you know, class A real estate that is next to a Starbucks or that is next to a Lululemon. And I think that is why people were so excited hmm. because we were front and center and we did take that risk. And I think people noticed that it, it was a big risk, but the reward was was really wonderful. And we got we got to meet so many great people right out the gate um, that they yeah they really set us up for success in figuring out where that second spot should be. So talk a little bit about the the experience. You'll probably describe it better than I can when you what how the setup worked and, and it was all designed to be pretty, pretty quick turn. Yep, absolutely. So it's an open air concept is how I classify it. But Efficient and effective facial services. So we have 40-minute facials. Again, strip the, the mentality of the traditional spa. If you haven't been into a face boundary or don't know the, the layout of the store, you keep your, keep your clothes on. Everything is out in the open. Really, we want to focus on your facial needs. So we offer 40-minute um, facials. We have 20-minute mini facials. We have brow services, brow lamination, brow tint, brow henna. Uh, lash extensions, and then curated skincare items. What's the most uh, popular service? Oh, my goodness. Um, you know what? It's, it's probably a toss-up between the sculpt facial and then the hydrofacial with dermaplaning. Mm. Lady, ladies love the dermaplaning. I, 
I try to do it to myself and my estheticians are finally like, you need to stop. You need, you're, you're going to cut yourself. <laughs> Left to the professionals. Um, was there any, um, as much as you were focusing on the efficiency, I'm curious, did you have people who were like, but wait, I, I want the massage. I want the, you know, I want the pomp and circumstance of it all. Or did they understand? I think there's always a time and place for that really nice luxury spa day. Mm -hmm. I think the clients that we were attracting when we opened were really pleasantly surprised. They they went in thinking they could probably never afford a facial mm. because that idea was, hey, facials are three, four hundred dollars. We changed that mindset. So I don't think they went in with preconceived ideas of, well, where's my foot massage? Or, you know, I want my hand dipped in wax. I think that... Um, that that wasn't really there. Yeah, interesting. Um, so so did were there what were the the learnings? There must have been some things with Edina that you had to tweak or change. <laughs> you know what what did you learn in the early days? Oh my gosh, how much time do we have? <laughs> where where were you the most right, <laughs> and where were you the most wrong? Um, I would say it's about a ten ninety split because, and I would say. Most right being 10, right? And then oh, most wrong. Oh, come on. Give yourself a little credit. I know. I, okay, I'll give you an example. We opened Edina, and I was thinking, okay, I really wanted it to be this facial bar and really encompass the bar, right? Mm -hmm. So we set up our cash wrap as a bar. I thought, oh, people will want to sit down. They can get a juice shot or just hang out. No, people wanted to get in and get out. But uh. our bar was facing the service area. So really, it was super awkward when these poor, these poor girls would come in and they, they would get these facials and our, our, or our front bar would be staring at them. <laughs> and so uh, within the first two weeks, uh, I closed down for about a half a day and we moved and we restructured the entire store. Uh -huh. just, a quick, just a quick $10,000 mistake. You oh, know. ouch. <laughs> no biggie. <laughs> Isn't that interesting, though? There are things like that that you just can't know until you see it all in action. And it was nice to be able to make those changes quickly and mm -hmm. nimbly. And every store after has been a newer, better iteration. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what I love about this business is and owning a business and being an entrepreneur is being able to problem solve and quickly find those solutions that really do make lasting effects. What about the services itself? I mean, the core to what you were what you were selling. Did you nail that from day one? A lot of the services have stuck, and people really we knew in the first two months, right, which ones were working, which ones weren't. Um, we had a facial called Man of the Year, and in a lot of the research I did with this concept, and granted, I was pulling a lot of the numbers from the East and West Coast because that's where facial bars or facial concepts are probably the most obvious and prevalent, 18% um, of their clientele was male. Hmm. So, all right, let's try it. We're going we're gonna to cater to men. And we are getting there as a concept, but right out the gate, that wasn't the case. And so man of the year, we had to cut from the menu and um, we reincorporated it. And we really tried to modify our sculpt facial, which is now one of our best-selling facials, to accommodate uh, both men and women. So is that a Midwestern problem? You know, I think that's just going to be something we learn from as we expand. Mm -hmm. Because I, we're seeing an uptick, even when we opened NOLO, we saw a huge uptick in men being comfortable 
So I don't know if it was just the initial concept that we had to introduce ourselves and maybe it was more so, hey, bring your friends, bring your male friends or bring your boyfriend or your husband to get them comfortable with a facial. Um, But truly, that's still something we're working through. You mentioned the coasts, and I'm curious, especially, you know, as we see like, you know, dry bar, which you mentioned earlier, you know, come in and a lot of the locals that tried to, you know, copy, well, not copy, but but do something similar, didn't make it. What gave you the confidence that you were going to be able to start something here in Minnesota and expand out from here and compete with other bigger companies? I think having a business you know, my original business, Primp, from St. Paul, I've, I've learned a lot about the consumers here, and they are fiercely loyal. And they, if they like something, they will tell their friends, they will tell their family, they will be your biggest advocates. And so for me, I think that you look at concepts on the coast, and it's kind of hit or miss. You can take off and then it can kind of fizzle out. But if you can capture that Midwestern consumer and that Midwest mindset, I truly think it can kind of work out. Outwards. Really? You Absolutely. think it's easier to start here? I think that you'll know if it'll work because uh-huh. I think people along the coast are far more open to, you know, kind of wacky, wild ideas. And so there's a lot of concepts that are really, really wild that probably wouldn't work here. But if you can test it in the Midwest and they love it, then, you know, you can start to push things out closer to the coast. Very and work interesting. Outwards. So in your business plan, um, how long did you expect it to take to get to location number two? And then what was the reality? I think, well, let's just face it. I, I wrote that business plan for just one location and I thought we'll document and we'll try to then franchise. Mm. Um, within two months, I mean, again, we listened to our consumers and they were all about telling us where to go. And I love that because when you have a vocal consumer, you can make changes really quickly. Mm-hmm. And so they, a lot of them were coming from Minneapolis and, you know, the drive was 11 miles. It was a good 15 minutes. And so we really listened and we found a space in NOLO and we're really, really happy with it. Um, that one took a little bit, little bit more to ramp up, but it's a phenomenal so, space. So you're, you were getting a lot of probably slightly younger uh, like what working professionals who were living downtown, NOLO being the North Loop of Minneapolis, um, and you felt like you just had to strike while the iron was hot and open it rather than wait to franchise it. Yeah. And it's it's two very different markets, right? Like you think of the Galleria and I love, you know, it, it's so beautiful. They've got such great high end stores. But then when you go to NOLO, um, it is a little bit younger crowd. Uh, people are living in condos and there's you know a lot of activity down there, but it is a younger consumer. And mm-hmm. so being able to cater to both, I think, is a really, really strong case study for then franchising. And right. so after opening NOLO, we really realized we need to put one more in the suburbs to make sure that we hit every single different demographic. So then we do have a really nice portfolio of corporate locations that we can showcase and and prove to franchisees that this concept could work just about anywhere. So how did franchising go? We'll find out after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Is your bank a partner or simply a provider? In today's environment, businesses need a bank that can move quickly and act creatively. 
Platinum Bank understands the Twin Cities market, partnering with clients to overcome challenges and capitalize on opportunities. Their financial products and services are tailored to meet the unique needs of your organization. To learn how Platinum Bank can be an asset to your business, visit www.platinumbankmn.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. Interest in Face Foundry's franchise program came quick. Michelle tells us how she set up the company for smart growth. I'm curious from the people that you had talked to and the other businesses you had studied, is there a, a recipe or a formula for how many, you know, corporate stores you should have before franchising? You know, it it kind of varies. I mean, you look at Massage Envy and they were open three months. They had one store and they franchised the rest, right? Wow. And so, but then you look at, you know, Great Clips, mm -hmm. they have a really, really strong fleet of corporate stores. And so I think it just depends. Um, you know, it, it just varies business to business. I think that our concept was really strong right out the gate and I wanted to present it to people that wanted the franchise. And so I didn't want to wait. Yeah. Were you making enough money quickly to finance locations two and three or did you have to raise money or go get loans? What was great was as we were opening store two, um, it was it was apparent that, you know, we could then take those earnings from both stores and, mm -hmm. and fund store three. But I will say, um, you know, again, life has a crazy way of working out, but we were set to launch franchising March 1st, 2020. So you were you were ready to go. You had your whole book and you're ready to start franchising in March 2020. And then the pandemic happens and everything changed both for your business. And you had a partner initially who at that point stepped out. Yep, exactly. Lots of different changes and lots of things. I, I had to kind of retrain my brain from, and I think a lot of business owners can speak to this and the world in general, but I had to really retrain my brain because I look back at you know, middle of March to end of June, when we finally got to reopen our stores. And every single day was just such a whirlwind of change. And mm -hmm. you're just bracing yourself for what am I going to hear today? You know, we furlough all our employees. And then all of a sudden, you know, we have to close down our warehouse. Okay, now what are we going to do? Who are we paying rent to? Are we paying rent? Mm -hmm. When do we get to go back? And you get you know, we had at the time two stores worth of employees asking those same questions every single day. And I was their point of contact. Yeah. How, how did you I mean, you came up with some clever things to get you through. But did you get PPP money to, to help? Oh, yeah. Okay. That was hugely helpful, yeah. to be honest, um, especially as a business that was only a year old. But we did we came up with what we call glow to goes, which were which we still actually sell, and they're they're phenomenal. They're tiny little, I would say, boxes of a facial. It's a facial in a box, mm -hmm. and it has all of the steps of everything we would do in our protocols in the store to be able to allow consumers to do a facial at home, so they could still keep up with their monthly routine. It was, I mean, it was a good way to keep your name out there and to to stay in touch with with customers while you had to be closed down. Our clients were so supportive during the pandemic. We had a lot of members that kept their memberships and then they would turn them, uh, turn that money into, you know, products used online or they would purchase glow to goes So it was. 
And and members being they were paying a monthly fee to get a, a certain number of services. Yes. Okay. So so you went into the pandemic all raring to go. You're about to franchise. It's your dream come <laughs> true. You come out of the pandemic having um, you you now are on your own. Your partner stepped out, had a baby. You you guys parted ways. Yep. And. Are you still feeling as committed and as as strongly that that you can go national or or did it make you more nervous about everything? I honestly look back and I think I blacked out a lot of the <laughs> pandemic yeah. because it was almost like it was like a safety mechanism because I look back on those days single mom I had just <laughs> bought out my business partner I just signed a lease for a third store Oh, and P.S., I'm funding it all. And, oh, you've got three kids that you have to make sure you answer to. You know, it was a, I look back and I wonder, did I sleep? Like, I I think I was just worried all the time. So I knew the next step in that process after we got to actually reopen and start servicing again. um, The next step was just getting Maple Grove open and really just like it was one foot in front of the other. Um, I feel like my sight line wasn't super long because I, I knew I had a pretty big job to tackle. When, how long did it take then to, to come out with the franchising opportunity? So we opened Maple Grove uh, October 2020. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, again, an interesting time to open. Still very, very touch and go. A um, lot of different mask mandates and then things we were trying to do on top of that to make sure that our clients felt really safe. Mm-hmm. Um, we ended up launching franchising January 10th, 2021. So just a little over a year ago. People were really excited, though. And majority of the people that ended up stepping into our system as franchisees were clients. Really? Yes. So where did the first franchises sell? We sold... Eden Prairie, Wyzetta, and Apple Valley to a local woman. She's fantastic. And the second tranche was Chicago, St. Paul. We had St. We had Sioux Falls, Woodbury. Um, and then you started going. I'm further. trying to think of. No, that's the, okay. Oh my God! Look. Oh no, I forgot. I forgot. Wisconsin. We okay. sold out the state of Wisconsin. That was super, super exciting. Fargo. Um, yeah, and from but there. how did the people? Okay, so it makes sense that your first franchisees would come from this market because they knew you, and and I think you had in your head a, a, a kind of a number of how many stores the Twin Cities could handle. For sure. Okay, definitely didn't want to oversaturate, and that's something that is really important to us. A little bit different than a typical franchising model because you look at, say, a Subway or a McDonald's. You know, you can put one on almost every corner. That's not the case for service, and we wanted to be mindful of that radius. So once you got beyond the Twin Cities, how did people even know to, to be interested in a, a Face Foundry franchise? It's so funny because, again, everything comes back. Everything's connected, right? I look back. Um, we sold the state of Wisconsin to two partners. They're, they're phenomenal. They're actually opening Milwaukee. They just opened Milwaukee. But their first store was in Appleton, Wisconsin. And their good friend was actually the designer who helped design all the primp stores. Mm, Wow. Oddly enough, like small world kind of connections. 
our Arizona franchisee. I actually went to St. Thomas with her. So it's, it's just kind of wild. I, I really, I love that everything is connected yeah. and, and how they find out about us. It is truly just kind of organically spreading the word. Timing-wise, to, to go national at this time when, as you were saying, I mean, there were still mask mandates and, you know, everything was so kind of up in the air. Um, what have you found in the beauty industry? Is everybody back? Is, is it back like normal? Or were people, were customers a little gun-shy about coming back to a salon? Oh, when we reopened, I mean, keep in mind, you know, we had our NOLO location a lot of it was still kind of boarded up downtown with the riots. And people were nervous in the sense that it still felt like, is this enough? Is, is a mask enough? Is our gloves enough? I'm taking off my mask. Am I going to be okay or am I going to be exposed? And so there was a lot of precautions we had to make sure that we were ensuring the customers that we are doing everything. We would do full cleans of the store every 30 minutes. We will mm. wipe down every single surface. Truly, you just couldn't be over, yeah. overly cautious because that was what you had to do to make sure that people felt safe. And I remember reopening that June and it was, it was sad. I mean, the numbers were not stellar. Yeah. And then slowly people started coming back. I think after July that year, um, once people kind of came back from the cabin, came back from working remotely, it, it really did start to pick up. And I think truly people came out of isolation needing that self-care and needing that human touch and interaction. And so really it was a big push for that kind of mental wellness. Any changes you made or lessons that come out of that time that, you'll, that actually will carry forward? Oh, I mean, we definitely still do all of the, the cleanliness protocols. I don't know if that'll ever change mm -hmm. because truly I think that it's just important to have those really high, you know, sanitation. We're all a little more aware now, yeah. Absolutely. And so I think that's really important and that's something that definitely stuck. Um, I would say that is probably one of the biggest things. So at this point, you have how many, um, how many locations are open? At this moment, yeah. we have 15 open, and then Nashville actually opens next week, and then uh, Morristown, New Jersey opens the week after. So Amazing. we'll have 17 by the middle of June. How has your job changed as you've sort of transitioned from running this startup um, facial spa to now being, a, you know, a, an owner of a franchise company? What's changed? I think quite a bit. I really, really, I am really grateful that I had that time in the store to really understand the starting points, because I do think that I can then speak to the franchisees that are stepping into our system and say, I have been there. Trust me, I get it. And, and really kind of hone in on what we did that worked and some of the mistakes that we made that they can avoid. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, for me, my job has really shifted as now we have a really great team of people on our, on our corporate staff that I get to lead. And then I also get to interface with our franchisees a lot more. So I think that it's shifted a little bit out of store and then really just kind of shifted to, you know, servicing our, our employees at an executive team level and our franchisees. How many employees do you have? How many are on the corporate team? I think we're just shy of 80. 
Wow. But that includes the corporate stores. Okay. Okay. Um, Do you have to be out there selling franchises? Like, how how does that work? How do you, you know, especially as you go further away from Minnesota, it's great that there are connections all over. But do you have to be out there selling or are people just coming to you? Everything has been organic. We have yet to take on a broker. Typically, franchise systems, you have lots of brokers that are out there really explaining the concept. We're not there yet because I really want to make sure the the quality of franchisees stepping into our system. I want to make sure that it's there because yeah. that's a long relationship. That's 10 years that they're they're stepping in and owning a face foundry. So at the end of the day, I want to make sure I get along with them. And sure. you really don't have that opportunity when you use a broker or a third party. And so it is very much they, we have a franchise sales director. She chats with them, make sure that they're qualified, a good fit, and then we fly them up for Discovery Day and host them in our corporate headquarters office in Eden Prairie, walk them through our process, and then take them to all of our corporate stores and end with a service. So a little bit different than most uh, franchise systems, but it's important to us that we're on the same page and that our mission is the exact same as theirs. I was going to say, if I walked into a face foundry in Arizona or in New Jersey, am I going to feel like I'm at the original at the Galleria in Edina? 100%. I mean, our training platform, I think that is the one of the greatest things that we were blessed with the time during our closure in COVID. We were really able to reformat and basically create an online training platform that truly could be, you know, distributed to any franchisee anywhere in the world. You can take all of these, you know, online quizzes and make sure that the retention is there. Um, but ultimately, you know, we're lucky because we we do get to host our operations training and it is a very, very full week of a lot of protocols and it's all aesthetics. And then we dispatch our trainers down to the stores to make sure that then that retention is there across the board. Every single person that works under that system understands it. How many face foundries do you think the, the world can handle? What do, what do you see? What are your plans? You know, my goal is never to oversaturate. And I think that's really important because I think this concept, it's, it's something that's really special and people will drive a little bit further instead of having one on every corner. We are on um, a mission to have a national expansion, and we think that we'll have 100 units sold by the end of the year, and we're pacing that way. But I never want to put a limit on, on the amount we think we can grow, but our goal you know, in the next two years is to take this internationally. So wow. that's kind of our next step, um, making sure that we have the appropriate number of units on a national basis, but really pacing ourselves to the growth that the franchisees allow. And are you at the point of going into markets where you might have some competitors, where there might be other kind of, you know, um, quick service spas? We've seen it already. You know, Chicago's a big city. Mm -hmm. Phoenix is a big city. Nashville's a big city. So we're already well aware of what competitors are in that market, even before we, you know, plant our flag in the ground. And, and how do you stack up? What's going to make the, the customer come to Face Foundry? I think it's a few things. I think that ultimately it is a very, very unique, specialized service. But I think that the facials, the protocols, the products used, the 
the education and acumen of the estheticians and the staff members and ultimately our enhancements, I think all around give you this like kind of perfect package. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really something special that I have not been able to pinpoint or find with a competitor. How often do your clients come in? What do you know about them? I mean, in terms of demographics, age, what's the sweet spot for Face Foundry? I would say our sweet spot is probably 26 to 38, Mm -hmm. um, if I had to really kind of consolidate it into an age range. But we do have, you know, we have a lot of outliers. We get mothers coming in with their 16-year-old daughter, and they're both getting facials. Um, We have grandmothers coming in with their grandchildren. So we see a lot of people coming in monthly. The membership sales have really, really skyrocketed. Hmm. And so I think that People are really well aware and being really proactive about their skincare. So mm-hmm. we're seeing a lot of a lot of people under the age of eighteen coming in now. Interesting. Okay, so it really is a a, a wide range. Um, meanwhile, then you've you've got this whole thing going and you're growing, and then you decide, oh, I'm gonna open an aesthetic school. <laughs> Talk about that. Yep, just like that, and it's open. No, it was. <laughs> It seemed like it. Oh, no. See, on the back end, it was a ton of work. But really, we wanted to bridge that gap and make sure that we are bringing in the best of the best estheticians into Face Foundry. And so what we were hoping to do with executing this school is to offer just aesthetics. Um, So definitely not a cosmetology school. That's where it does differ from, you know, some of your traditional... um, Cosmo schools or Mm -hmm. aesthetic schools, and really bridge the gap for our estheticians stepping into the system. Now, do you have to go to Face Foundry after you graduate from our aesthetic school? Absolutely not. We're just excited that people want to get back into aesthetics, and we're seeing a lot more young individuals skipping over that four-year degree and really interested in the skincare industry and, and showing a lot of interest in servicing. We have a very great relationship with the Cosmetology Board of Minnesota, mainly because I email them every day (laughs) asking questions, or at Mm -hmm. least I did while we were starting the school. Our director, though, is she's phenomenal. She came from another another competing school. She she knows how to run instructors. She knows what to look for in students and how to direct them and manage them. So I feel very fortunate that she's part of it because, again, it's not it's not me. It's really I'm funding the project in hopes that ultimately it does help benefit our Face Foundry franchisees. And do you see this as something that you'll also franchise or or take to other cities where there are Face Foundries? We've definitely been asked that. I don't want to say yes or no because classes don't start until next week. So (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm putting the cart before the horse. I don't Uh want to tell you something without actually seeing it in action. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're just, you're just getting started with your first class um, at your new headquarters in Eden Prairie. And that's also, you're, you're also making products. Are you, are you actually manufacturing or, I mean, you've got, there are several different things happening here. Absolutely. I like to stay busy. No, (laughs) the, the products have been in the works for the last two years. Mm -hmm. And so this was even pre-pandemic. We have a wonderful chemist and she is actually in her past life an esthetician. So she came in, she really, really helped us formulate these seven different SKUs. And from there, we started exploring manufacturing. It was super important to us to 
lower our carbon footprint and keep it local. Because Mm. let's face it, if you can keep it closer to home, those active ingredients stay pure. If they're sitting on a cargo ship coming over the ocean in a you know hot container for six months, those active ingredients dissipate. And so that was really important to us. And we're working with a phenomenal local manufacturer. So how involved are you in, in that part of the process? Well, we went through so many different beta tests. And so it it's important that every single person on my team, anytime we would get any sort of samples, we'd lay them all out, everybody would wash their face, and we would start from A to B, go through the entire line. How does it feel? What does it smell like? I mean, we went through so many iterations because, let's face it, you don't want to screw up when you're manufacturing 10,000 mm-hmm. of a product. And so I think that was something that was super important to us. And it would just be too costly of a mistake to, to not have hands on it. Yeah. Um, it, but is it something that you feel like if you're going to have spas, you've got to have your own product line? Or is it just, I mean, is there is that a big money-making opportunity? I think, yes. You know, ultimately, bottom line, our franchisees are, are everything to us. And so we want to make sure that their margins are increased. And so by taking on products and making sure that we're manufacturing them, we get to make sure we control the supply chain, but also make sure that the margins are there. Hmm. And so incorporating them into protocols and ultimately selling them retail, that's only going to benefit the franchisees. Sure. What's the best advice in as you look at all these different things? You're in manufacturing, you're in education, you're in franchising, you're in service. What's the best advice that you've received about running a, a business like this? Oh, I am lucky because during the pandemic, I, I joined WPO, which mm-hmm. is Women's President's Organization. Yep. And I am so grateful I had that group of women at such a very, very wild time um, that we're trying to navigate through together. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I have learned so much individually from each of them. I'm trying to pick out what, what the most key component would be. And I think, I think it's how you treat your staff. I think it's truly like, I know that, that if we're talking about manufacturing, it might not be as applicable, but it's, it's making sure that your staff and your franchisees are happy because ultimately that trickles down into your clients and into your other staff members. And I think that's really important. And I think having empathy as a leader is key. Are you at a point where you can ever turn your phone off or take a day off? Or not yet? No. I mean, <laughs> will and, you ever? And that's just it. I don't, I don't, I love, I love being able to communicate with people and making sure they know I'm so committed to this brand. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like we're, we're at a place where we're still a young system. And so I, I, I owe it to my franchisees and my staff to be there. And, you know, it's funny, people ask, like, what do you do for fun? I'm like, well, I, travel to the franchisees openings and then I get to see the city afterwards but mm-hmm. that's really fun <laughs> and that's how I think of it um so. what's your favorite part of all of this I would say my favorite part that well there's a lot of them actually I, I'll try to pick maybe two how about that okay um the franchisees and bringing in really really savvy people that have such a great unique background um I the people that have entered into this system they come from, you know, years of corporate experience and serve on different boards and 
One came in from a Fortune 50 company that she was running. They're so interesting. Why do they want to do it? Why do they want to own a face foundry? I think that people came out of COVID and they said, whoa, life is short and nothing is guaranteed. I Am I happy? Am I going to be happy doing this long term? And a lot of our franchisees at their core values are are that they really want to make people feel good. Hmm. Their mission is the same as ours. And I think that that's where that alignment happened. And it was, it's very easy to spot who will, who will make it in the system and who we want to partner with. Mm-hmm. You said you had, you were going gonna... to. I had two. I had two. The products. I love the products and the innovation, like the, the active ingredients and just being able to see true results yeah. from these products. Yeah. Um, it's got to feel so gratifying that you, you saw this white space in the market and you were right. It's working. How does that feel? I'm very grateful. I will say that I'm, but I never want to rest on my laurels or, you know, like pat myself on the back because I, I keep thinking, what's next? What, what more can I do? And so I'm, I don't want to say I'm a little scarred from past failures, but they always do hang with you a little bit. And so I always want to make sure that I learn from them and make every single system I build better. (laughs) It feels like a lot of people we talk to on By All Means, I mean, it's just sort of it's in your DNA. Like you have no choice. You you are born an entrepreneur. Do you feel that way that that it's just you're kind of born into it and it's what you have to do? What, what is yes. the mindset? Yes. And I because I, I think about, you know what, if if I I don't know if I could commit this much time, energy, passion, excitement, tears, blood, sweat, tears. Seriously, like truly, yeah. that is what entrepreneurship is. I don't think I could commit that to anything else or or do that for anyone else. And so mm. I think that, yes, ultimately, I do think it's in your DNA. And if you have that that passion, you can't turn it off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you think now about this particular business and you look at Face Foundry and you think about, you know, all those business ideas from years past and your, you know, clothing design chapter. I mean, would you ever have guessed that that this is the business, that this is the one that would that would stick, that this is what you'd be doing? You know, it's funny. I I have so many different like journals and notebooks and I found one from seventh grade and it had different lipstick names oh. on it. And so maybe, you know, just maybe all of the things that they were just breadcrumbs leading up to this. I don't know. I I have to assume so. I mean, I've always liked skincare and I've always liked makeup. Uh, so I would guess that, yeah, I think they all tie together. Meant to be. Uh, well, it's an, it's an amazing story. And, and to think of, you know, it's just a couple years ago that you were like, I'm going to do this. I want to I want to walk you through what I'm going to do. And you've done it. And it's happening. It, it's really credit to you. Congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been a wild ride. Well, keep us posted. I know there will be more chapters to, to share for sure, especially as your products come out. I'm anxious to try. Thank you. Yes. I want your feedback. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go slather myself with serum now. I'll be right back. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Face 
Foundry expects to hit 100 units sold by the end of the year. Truly an amazing story and in such a fast amount of time. Let's get more perspective on Michelle's amazing story and franchising. We're going to go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, where John McVeigh is a professor. Professor McVeigh, I just marvel always at how the entrepreneur sees the problem and then actually goes for it. Michelle seems to be the perfect example of that. <laughs> yeah, I love, it's great to hear of a successful Tommy, multiple uh, entrepreneur. And it, it makes me laugh because she has a mindset. You can just hear it coming through her voice that many entrepreneurs share. Uh, I mean, most of us go through our lives and we trip over problems all the time. Mm -hmm. Like, why are the holes on spill? Or why is the garbage picked up this way? Or why can nobody make a zipper that works? <laughs> and we uh, and sort of for what comes into our mind initially for most of us is somebody should do something about this. Right. Somebody should do something about this. And, you know, if we're even adventurous, we go, well, the government should do something or a business should do something about this. It's ridiculous. But with the entrepreneurs different, they go, somebody should do something about this. Why not me? Mm -hmm. And then what's even more beautiful in this story, then your father goes, well, I'll tell you why not you, because A, you don't know anything about it. Right. And the entrepreneur goes, no, I really understand the problem. Mm -hmm. I don't know the solution, but I'll figure that out. But I understand this problem. And I think I can bring something to it. Why not me? And just that why not me attitude, I think, is something that is so characteristic of uh, of entrepreneurs. Yeah. And uh, she's a perfect example of that. So she also has so fully embraced this franchising model, had the vision that it was right for her business. There certainly are economic reasons why it makes sense, but there's also the human side. Can you talk a little bit about both? Yeah, I, I, I love that part of this of, of the story. You know, economically speaking, we talk about franchising normally with regard to growth. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it facilitates growth for an entrepreneur. Uh, most entrepreneurial businesses have a natural rate of growth. That's the rate at which they sort of throw off profits and then they can reinvest this to open branch two, branch three. And so you're limited on how fast you can expand by your rate that you're raising, you know, generating capital yourself. Sure. Now, if you want to grow faster than that, Here's a great way. You could borrow money. But if you're trying to grow to 20 stores, that means you as an unknown entrepreneur have to go and raise a couple of million dollars. That's really hard to do. Mm -hmm. And it also takes you away from your concept and your customer, which she remained beautifully focused on. What franchising can do, it says, well, let's farm out that task of raising the capital to these people called franchisees. So they can raise it in 20 different towns across the country individually. And I, as the key entrepreneur, can still stay focused on the concept mm. and on the customer. And the same is true for management. If you, she was going to immediately herself set up 20 stores, she would be absorbed into this huge process of all recruiting all the managers and all the staff and training them and setting up the systems. And again, it would take her away from excellence of the concept and the customer. But instead of which, you farm that out to franchisees. So our economists, friends, would tell us these are the two basic functions. Franchising allows you to expand faster because it lowers the cost and the risk of raising capital, and it lowers the cost and the risk of assembling a management team. Mm -hmm. 
So I listened for that in the interview, and we do hear that. And she's a very savvy business person, Michelle, and really, you know, really gets those advantages. But what also comes across is the thing the the economists never talk about is her sheer human joy in opening opportunity to other people. Right. To empowering other women to be businesswomen in their own rights. You can tell that the training and the interviewing of these um, franchisees is really where she gets her purpose and her joy and her, her mission of her organization. And, you know, that is something that we underestimate, as you put it, uh, the human side mm-hmm. as well, and the inspiration side, as well as the economic side. Right. And, uh, you know, she reminds me very much of a woman she's probably familiar with, Anita Roddick, who founded The Body Shop many oh, years ago yeah. in, in the UK. And she had a very similar characteristic. Her most important thing when she got up every day was, I interview the franchisees myself, one-on-one, mm. no matter where in the world. And she also asked them very unusual questions. She used to ask them, you know, who is your favorite philosopher or how would you like to die? (laughs) Rather than, you know, what is your cash flow projection for year three? Because she realized that's where her pleasure and her leadership come, finding the right people with the right inspiration to to empower them to be leaders. Right. Um, And so that's another exciting part of of the franchising uh, decision. Well, it definitely makes franchising look like a smart strategy. Thank you, John McVeigh, for the insights. And thank you to our presenting partner, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. Hey, if you want to find a face foundry, they're opening from Arizona to Florida. Just go to the website. That's facefoundry.com, foundry with an I-E. And of course, if you want to know more about By All Means, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. Thanks so much for listening. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Associate Dean Laura Dunham for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means.